This is our DOLW podcast, 16th, April the 12th, 2021. We'll be uh, going over the right of sodomy by Randy Engel. That's page 747759, but we're actually going to go, we started there. We're going to now be into 763. We're going forward, it's page 763. And in this episode of the podcast, we speak with Randy Engel about Wolves, not shepherds. Randy Engel is present to us through her writings. We cover, we begin to cover in this new chapter, what happens to a diocese when a bishop, the shepherd of his flock, and father to his priests, turns wolf. And how has Rome reacted to a bishop turned wolf? This is part of our ongoing task of forming believers. And uh, in the show notes, you'll hear about the history of the church in the USA. We'll start with Bishop Carroll. Uh, we'll discuss a little bit about him. The history of church in, in, in Bardstown Diocese. That's Bishop Carroll and the local clergy. They were struggling. There were lawsuits. The history of the church in Bardstown Diocese. Property rights, struggle, lawsuits. There was a trusteeship, guardianship theory of the case. I think they use the trusteeship. I use guardianship. Questions to ask your clergy, your bishop. We'll talk about it. Uh, is it true that uh, we're talking about financial reform and lay involvement, about uh, what exactly the laity did early on? Did they have more control over property rights? How does it look when the clergy exercise excessive control? Because there were complaints early on in the church in uh, our diocese in the United States, our diocese before it was Lansing, was actually Bardstown. Mission territory covered by Bardstown. Then, in, then into Cincinnati. Then, So for further study, we are talking about, I haven't looked at it, they call it the Toleration Acts of 1639. That's interesting. You know, that they're seeking toleration. The clergy are. I believe the government and the clergy are discussing toleration of Catholics. We, in our diocese, in our parish, are today talking about toleration of Catholics, arguing with our parish priest, who, in our opinion, has very low toleration of uh, Bill, Therese, Mike, Heather, and some of the peripherals. Is it also true, Bishop, in 1788, an official letter from the American clergy was sent to Rome asking for a bishop and seeking as well the right of the American clergy to elect their own? Rome conceded. The American priests elected John Carroll. That's interesting, isn't it? So there's a lot of fluidity there. Uh, we believe here in Lansing, as laity, we're on a low-information diet. So we're sharing with you what we have learned of our own research, and we're asking our bishop to... Help us learn more. So I begin, page 763, chapter 14, Wolves, Not Shepherd. What happens to a diocese when a bishop, the shepherd of his flock, and father to his priests, turns wolf? And how has Rome reacted to a bishop turned wolf? These are two important questions that are explored in this continuing chapter on homosexual bishops in the American hierarchy. The special case of Joseph Cardinal Bernardine, Bernardin of Chicago, is handled 
in a separate chapter. For the record, each and every homosexual bishop identified as such in this chapter is in good standing either as an active bishop or as a bishop or archbishop emeritus, or has died in good standing. None of the ecclesiastic predators who have committed criminal acts against minor boys has spent a single day in jail. Nor has the Holy Father officially ordered a canonical trial for any bishop accused of sexual crimes or homosexual misconduct as a first step toward defrocking the offending bishop or relegating him to a strict and isolated monastic life. Incredibly, some of the disgraced bishops have voiced hope that the Holy Father will give them a new diocese sometime in the future. For a bishop to pray on a young seminarian or a priest placed in his care is an, un, is an in, unconceivable breach of faith and trust. Yet Rome continues to tolerate these gross violations of trust with a minimum of fuss and bother. There is no question on, of the harm done by the individual priest a religious who acts on his perverted desire, especially where the victim is a minor. But how much greater is the harm when the perpetrator is a bishop who possesses the power to ordain and who enjoys virtually unlimited financial resources with which to cover up his own and other pederastic crimes and sexual misconduct carried out by his associates? Morally corrupt bishops should be at the head of the line, not last in line. When it comes to defrocking and other forms of ecclesiastical punishment. As St. Peter Damien wrote more than 1,000 years ago, who can expect the flock to prosper when its shepherd has sunk so deep into the bowels of the devil? Who will make a mistress of a cleric or a woman of a man? Who by his, his lust will consign a son whom he has spiritually begotten for God's God to slavery under the iron law of satanic tyranny. A religious superior guilty of sodomy has not only committed a sacrilege with his spiritual son, but has also violated the law of nature. Such a superior damns not only his own soul, but takes another with him. Now, we're going to talk about Bishop Joseph Ferrario Diocese of Honolulu to support his claim that Ferraro this is page 764 to support his claim that Ferraro defrauded and deceived him let me make sure that I'm on the O'Connor asserted to support his claim that Ferraro defrauded and deceived him O'Connor asserted inter alia that means among other things that defendant Ferrario falsely represented he was a priest after the order of King Melchizedek, Melchizedek, when in fact he was and is a sodomite after the type of king of Sodom. In sum, O'Connor's fraud and deceit claim was that Ferrario misrepresented himself as a priest with beliefs conforming to church doctrine and that Ferrario did not actually hold such beliefs or otherwise conform to such doctrine. John H. O'Connor, plaintiff, Appellant versus the Diocese of Honolulu, November the 23rd, 1994. <coughs> so, we're going into the nitty-gritty between a, a bishop and a priest. And we're talking for the first time about uh, how, what, what are the claims being made in the granular about misrepresentation. What does a bishop 
proclaim. That's both implied promises and expressed promises. promises. That's my commentary. So let's continue. I continue on. Bishop Joseph A. Ferraro, the ordinary of the Diocese of Honolulu, was the first American bishop to be publicly accused of sexual molestation of a male minor, David Figueroa of Kalua, Oahu, Hawaii. The Ferraro Figueroa case, <coughs> hope I got that right, case is important because it reveals a pattern of premeditated and organized deception and criminal behavior in dealing with clerical sex offenders, a pattern with deep-seated historical roots that became more deeply embedded into the fabric of the church after the Second Vatican Council. The case involved the top echelon of the Catholic hierarchy in the United States, including the National Conference of Catholic Bishops slash United States Catholic Conference, the Papal Nunciature in Washington, D.C., and the Vatican. The victims and their families were all intimidated and or sworn to secrecy. Whistleblowers were exiled and or overtly persecuted and excommunicated. Seminaries were polluted. An entire diocese was colonized by the Lavender Mafia that included recruits from the mainland. Clerical pederasts found safe haven from prosecution and fresh prey. And so it went. All to protect an unfaithful bishop and sexual pervert, Bishop Joe Ferrario. <coughs> I continue. Joseph Anthony Ferrario was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania on March the 3rd, 1926. He studied at St. Mary's Seminary in Baltimore, operated by the Sulpicians. He was ordained for the Diocese of Honolulu under the ecclesiastical province of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. On May the 19, 1951, at St. Peter's Cathedral in Scranton, his first assignment was a teaching position at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, outside San Francisco, staffed by priests from the Society of St. Sulpice and operated by the Archdiocese of San Francisco. At one time, the 100-year-old seminary was considered to be the preeminent seminary on the West Coast. But since the 1970s, it has gained the reputation of being a lavender house, where homosexual seminaries patronize area gay bars and life is lived on the wild side. In 1959, Ferrario moved to Honolulu to teach at St. Stephen's Seminary on the island of Oahu in Kenyawa. The seminary at that time was a thriving institution built in 1946 on the Castle family property. It was expanded to accommodate nearly 70 students at its peak. The seminary and the college building were, where the seminarians lived were, were closed in 1970 and had been converted into a diocesan center for conventions, meetings, and retreats. Ferrario was served in a number of local parishes. Ferrario also served in a number of local parishes, including Holy Trinity Church in Kaluyo, Oahu. <coughs> Enter David Figueroa. Figueroa. In 1975, Father Ferrario was made pastor of St. Anthony of Padua Church, the school in Kalawa, where he served for three years. Father Joseph Henry, the pastor of St. Anthony's for 25 years, had died. Shortly after he settled in at the parish, Ferrario met David Figueroa, a dark-haired, dark-eyed, very handsome, 15-year-old Portuguese youth who did odd jobs around the rectory and school. David's mother, who had 15 children, worked as a housekeeper at the rectory. When Father Joe arrived at the scene, on the scene with Figueroa, 
household uh, on the scene, the Figaro household was in a turmoil as Mrs. Figaro was in the middle of a divorce proceeding from her abusive husband. One day, David confided to the new pastor that he had been sexually abused by Father Henry for 10 years since he started kindergarten. <coughs> Father Ferrario's predecessor, Father Henry, a Marino priest, came to Honolulu in 1950 from, uh, from China after being released from a communist internment camp. In 1952, St. Anthony's opened its school staffed by the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carol Carondelet. In 1966, the old mission church was rebuilt to accommodate the area's growing Catholic population. The new church was a work of art. Father Henry had the Stations of the Cross in the gardens hand-carved and imported from Obermergau, Germany, and all the marble was imported from Italy. According to Edward Greeny, the church's historian, the new church was recognized immediately for its beauty and culmination of Father Henry's career as a builder of parish facilities and molder of men for the priesthood. Unfortunately for the children at the parish, Father Henry was also a pedophile who preyed on little boys, or at least one boy that we know of, David Figueroa. Father Ferraro asked David if he had told anyone about the matter. David said he had told no one, not his mother or father or brothers or sisters or his friends. According to David, at that point, Ferrario took over where Father Henry had left off. The fact that Father Henry had already broken in the young man meant that Ferrario was spared the trouble of grooming him. Later, David said that until he went to high school, he thought that all priests were like that, i.e. pederasts. In 1975, when Ferrario began his sexual assault on David, the young man was only 15, one year under the age of legal consent in Hawaii. Ferrario was guilty of statutory rape. According to Figueroa, sex took place... You're now in 766. According to Figueroa, sex took place several times a week until he graduated high school. Money was always forthcoming after the sexual service was rendered. Ferrario also aided the Figueroa family financially. This financial assistance continued even after he had left the parish. In one of these counseling sessions, Ferrario advised David to drop out of school and go to San Francisco to live. But David wanted to at least get his high school diploma. After graduation, Figueroa, convinced he was gay and born that way, left Hawaii to live in the gay capital of the world. David said that said the bishop provided money for his airfare to the mainland and for getting settled in San Francisco. But the young man had difficulties making ends meet. In the end, he worked at odd jobs and sold his body as a male prostitute. Ferraro, on at least two occasions, provided cash for David to visit home. When Ferrario came to see to San Francisco on business for or for pleasure, the two men engaged in sex at St. Patrick's Seminary. When David visited Honolulu, the two had sex at St. Stephen's Seminary. David was 21 years old when the affair ended. Soliciting sex at St. Stephen's Seminary. On January the 13th, 1978, Father Ferrario was ordained an auxiliary bishop of Honolulu by Bishop John J. Scanlon assisted by Archbishop John Raphael Quinn of San Francisco and Bishop James Timlin, Auxiliary Bishop of Scranton, Pennsylvania, at the Neo Blaisdell 
center. The Irish-born Scanlon made Ferrario his vocational director. Ferrario also continued to teach at St. Stephen's Seminary. In 1980, Ferrario made an unsuccessful attempt at sexual seduction at St. Stephen's. The young man in question left the seminary, telling his father that the atmosphere there was too promiscuous. He said that some seminarians had entered into homosexual unions. The following year, he told his father the whole truth that Bishop Ferrario had sexually propositioned him. His father contacted Archbishop Pio Lai, the newly arrived Papal Nuncio in Washington, D.C., who sent a representative to interview the ex-seminarian and his father to extract an oath of silence from them. Bishop Ferrario also paid the family a bishop and suggested to the father that his son had misinterpreted his sign of genuine affection. The father didn't buy the story. Bishop Scanlon ignores whistleblowers. From all reports, Bishop Scanlon has a decent but hard-headed... From all reports, Bishop Scanlon was a decent but hard-headed Irishman. He remained absolutely blind to what was going on around him, even after he had been warned by that Ferrara was an active homosexual and had engaged in a, sex, in a sexual liaison with another island priest. In 1978, two prominent Catholic business executives, Ted Waybright and Sue Mueller, informed Bishop Scanlon that a, minor, that a major scandal was in the works. They had their possessions... They had in their possessions a signed statement from a female secretary at a local parish who was told by her parish priest that Ferraro uh, was one of his lovers. Let's just pause there for a minute. A signed statement, and uh, this is a signed statement that's coming from the laity on the lay side. Uh, she's saying, they are saying, they had in their possession a signed statement from a female secretary at a local parish. This is important. You'll notice that on the other side, that uh, Archbishop, uh, who is the nuncio of, of the United States, the papal nuncio in Washington, D.C., Pio Lahi, went and extracted an oath of silence from them, probably in writing to on a, on a, on a Bible. This is the importance of our, our, what we have a little, I'm doing a digression. In our Lansing Diocese, we have what's called a um, ministry of, of affidavits. And I think when we have Therese back as a guest, uh, which we threaten to do, we try to do at least once or twice a month, if not more, she'll tell you the power, the efficacy of affidavit testimony and how at each turn in the road, the local parish priest, even so much as to mention it in Mass, would say, no need to contact the bishop, no need to do affidavits, don't do affidavits. In fact, the the uh, the threat was, the sword hanging over Teresa's head is, if you don't stop doing affidavits, uh, there will be consequences. Now that may have, I don't remember if that was expressed like saying, don't do them or I'm going to hurt you, or it was implied, and that uh, things won't go good. There's very subtle ways that uh, uh, the wolves in sheep clothing will express their distaste for you, their discomfort. It can be in the written language, it can be in the spoken, but it can be the tongue in the head, or we say the tongue in the shoe. The tongue in the shoe is a reference to each shoe is constructed and has a tongue. It's the part be- before when you're lacing up your shoe. And uh, you watch their behaviors, where their feet walked, 
walk in. So you see here, they're starting to get, the laity are starting to respond by documenting. And that's important in your ministry that you'll want to document. And you can talk, 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 but document in writing. And if you take a sworn testimony, sworn statement in the form of an affidavit, they can often be the queen of documents. I continue. When Ferraro learned what had happened, he ordered the tattletale pastor out of the diocese as an act of revenge before his departure from Honolulu. The pastor gave his secretary a list of 16 sexually active homosexual priests in the diocese. Scandal would not believe the charges against Ferraro. So you see the breaking of uh, the beginning, the early beginnings of a whistleblower uh, network, a whistleblower community, and but it's not perfect. They began this process, they're retaliated against, and so it's tit for tat and a struggle. So we're going to continue. In 1981, the dynamic duel of Waybright and Mueller took their case to Archbishop Leahy. They informed the apostolic delegate about Bishop Ferraro's homosexual activities. This was the second warning that Leahy had received concerning Honolulu's wayward auxiliary bishop. Leahy responded with a letter of his own stating that the communication was subject to a pontifical seal and they must remain silent about their findings. So keep that in mind. <clears throat> I would ignore such a statement like that. It's one-sided. He's saying it's pontifical seal and they must remain silent about their findings. We'll talk about the church existing. There's a canonical church and there's a charismatic church and are they the same boundaries? And so if they invoke a canonical right, is that, does the church exist only as far as can, the canonical boundaries go or does it exist beyond canonical boundaries? And I think the answer is it goes beyond canonical boundaries. So uh, if they were to put uh, a communication to you under pontifical seal that you must remain silent because they're going to now bless a sin, that's, that doesn't, that's meaningless, okay? They have no authority, power, jurisdiction. When a man is ordained in the Catholic Church, he receives a certain amount of three things, power, authority, and jurisdiction. Think of them as three pencils that you're holding in your hand. <coughs> so there are no pencils. There is no power, authority, or jurisdiction when you leave when you when you do the unintelligible or when you try to do evil. Okay? So remember that. So if I got something like that, my conscience is set up and I'd like to talk to John and Teresa, I think it's the same. That wouldn't bind me. That was unilateral. I didn't get consulted on that. I don't just accept that as being credible. And uh, you're trying to bless sin, you're trying to hide. Uh, the truth and destroy justice, that's like disfiguring Jesus Christ. Now, those are my thoughts. I invite some canon lawyers. I invite, I invite uh, my bishop to comment on it and tell me, uh, has he ever put anybody on a pontifical seal like that? I continue. On May the 13th, 1982, when news of Ferrara's appointment as the new bishop of Honolulu was made public, Waybright Mueller wrote to Archbishop Quinn in San Francisco asking him to inform Leahy of his, of his opposition to, to the appointment. Here you got two lay people going to a, their local bishop saying, tell Rome through the papal nuncio in Washington, D.C. that you oppose this. So these lay leaders are saying to their bishop, help us out here. This is not a good deal. This is not a good move. And maybe it's because of blindness. See, they're still assuming that people are acting in good faith 
and they will deal fairly with you. So watch what happens. We'll continue. But remember, two lay people, a woman and a man, are going to uh, Archbishop Quinn, who I believe, if, if I'm following this fact pattern, he's in San Francisco, talk to the guy in Washington, D.C., don't ordain Ferraro, and, uh, 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 you know, don't, uh, don't, don't add to any power, authority, jurisdiction that this bad bishop, this bad priest has, the guy's Ferraro, and watch what happens. So, uh, they apparently did not know what it was Quinn so they inform Leahy of his opposition to the appointment. So let me start. Waybright Mueller wrote to Archbishop Quinn in San Francisco asking him to inform Leahy of his opposition to the appointment. They apparently did not know that it was Quinn who secured the bishopric, bishopric for Farrell. Quinn wrote back to Waybright Mueller who, and told them that Pope John Paul II had chosen Ferraro, not him, and that they might as well get used to the idea. That's the arrogance, okay? So this is where the clergy are at their height. You know, they're doing these appointments. Now, when you look at the Catholic Church and the origins of the first bishop, John Carroll, in the United States, they, the meaning the clergy got together and said, listen, Pope, let us amongst the clergy pick somebody and uh, the by majority vote. And Rome said, okay. So these rules sometimes move around a little bit. They're fluid. Furthermore, you'll find out in the early American church that it, it, there's the trusteeship, there is doctrines of trusteeship, and I would Im- imply there's guardianship, but they don't use that term, I don't think, and that the laity had more of a, a say, particularly over property. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about money as the mother's milk of church corruption, money as the mother's milk of church politics, that there's no... Uh, uh, you you can you don't destroy priesthood by lay individuals having more control over property, all right. So that that you you're getting nowhere when you you have no leverage. You say to the guy, "Don't ordain a bad person. Don't move a bad person into this area of the church." They just ignore. They ignore the facts. So you have zero leverage. Where you do have the leverage is over property. There's a history of lay people controlling property. In the Catholic Church, <coughs> it's not an exclusive right to the ordained hierarchy. That's my point. Now, we continue. On June 19, 1982, one week before Ferraro's installment as Bishop of Honolulu, Waybright and Mueller made a second appeal to Leahy, who, <coughs> like Quinn, ordered them to support their new bishop and cease correspondence on the matter. Shut up, stay home, pay, pray, and obey is the response. That's how I read into it. So let's continue. Watch what happens. So... In the ensuing years, Waybright and Mueller would take their case against Ferraro directly to Rome. In early October 1985, they met with Cardinal Silvio Audi, prefect of the Sacred Congregation for the Clergy, concerning a homosexual drifter priest from Los Angeles who Ferraro had appointed a pastor. <coughs> Even after the predatory priest in question attempted to sexually molest a high school boy, Ferraro protected him from prosecution by promising that he would get the abuser psychiatric help. Instead, he gave the priest a new parish. A second meeting by Waybright and Mueller with Cardinal Odie on the Ferraro problem proved as useless as the first. The cardinal appeared sympathetic but did nothing. Okay? That's been your experience? We have remedies. Okay? So, uh, be faithful. Don't leave the church. You've got a lot of opportunity to leverage. 
It has to do with control of property and money. And let me just do a digression. So the lawsuits that are going on by in the church, uh, you know, you, you, you hurt my son or you hurt my daughter or you hurt, hurt uh, me when you sexually abuse me, those kinds of arguments are going to church, are going to court to take property away, punishing civilly. Uh, I want to be compensated for the wrong. Give me millions. That's after the fact. Some of us in this ministry will refer, <coughs> but we're not the ones going into court to take that money away from the clergy at that end of it after they've already received it. But we do, and you in your own uh, diocesan watch, watch for preventing them from getting their hands on the property to begin with. There's many more people who are willing to work and divert property from the hands of uh, uh, shepherds in wolves' clothing than they are. that They might not feel want to sue the church, but they will certainly divert their money. All right, So that's where we have the starve the DSA, starve the CSA, choke off the money, that kind of movement going on. That's not necessarily a lawsuit, that's controlling the money, and we'll show you why. We'll have little catechisms, little teachings on how to divert money uh, from the clergy and put conditions on their use of that money. So there's you're working both ends. You know, you got a group of people that have no problem suing the church uh, and, and going to uh, competent attorneys. We don't do that, but we'll help refer you. We have no problem referring you, and you assert your rights. But I want to let you know there's a lot more people who uh, are willing to divert their money from the church and from irresponsible, mediocre, um, monster clergy that just do not want to serve. I continue. Monsignor Francis Marzen was another whistleblower. We're going to talk about this. And uh, these are individuals who are whistleblowers. I'm going to do a time check here where we're at. And so let me do a little diversion to see how much time. we got plenty of time. <clears throat> Monsignor Francis Marsden, we're at page 767. Monsignor Francis Marsden was another whistleblower who tried to warn Scanlon and Leahy that Bishop Ferraro was destroying the diocese with his hatred for all things Catholic and, and his personal vices. Okay, now Monsignor Francis Marsden, let's unbundle that. To become a Monsignor, uh, Pope Francis doesn't want to give out Monsignorships that much. That's kind of a... Uh, um, it's like a bronze star or a purple heart. That is an insignia that this man has done a lot for the church, uh, has been meritorious as a priest. So that's why he gets the Monsignorship. Monsignor Francis Marsden was another whistleblower who tried to warn Scanlon and Leahy that Bishop Farrar was destroying the diocese with his hatred for all things Catholic and his personal vices. You know, watch how this is framed. He, uh, Monsignor Mars, uh, Marsden is smart. He, first of all, he's labeled here as a whistleblower. He's trying to warn, but he's assuming <coughs> that Scanlon and Leahy will act in good faith. He's assuming that they will, they will deal fairly with him. Those are presumed in the United States, common law goes into England. There's presumption for every contract that you have that the parties who are dealing with each other, they're presumed to be acting in good faith. They're presumed to be dealing fairly with each other. Okay? So... That means the court is not going to enforce a contract murder for hire. There's no good faith. There's no fair dealing there. It's an illegal contract, and uh, uh, we won't enforce the contract. It's null and void from the get-go. That's not quite the best example, but I give you an idea of good faith, bad faith that's lacking. So, And in your own um, diagnosis, when you're looking at your parish 
priest, the clergy, staff, and you ask simple questions, try to elicit from, test the spirit and see if they're destroying part of the church. How would you tell that? Well, if innocence is destroyed, you, you can ask the question, you know, has innocence been destroyed here? Or you could ask the question, listen, uh, you've removed Bill from these ministries. Pope Francis has defined cold shouldering and acting like that is murder in your heart. Give us a death certificate. You can ask for a death certificate. Now that's mockery. You're mocking them. You're never going to get a death certificate, but you're letting them know that I saw what you did. Your hand was in the cookie jar. You were stealing the cookies. You're stealing the Catholic faith. You're destroying the diocese. There's no way in Catholic faith, it's alien to the Catholic faith, to have an idea that we destroy innocence. When you go back to traditional wisdom in philosophy, E.F. Schumacher wrote about this, a, uh, an economist was dealing with economic development about how you pr- approach uh, different societies. That in every society, to kill the innocent, whatever innocent was, was considered a wrong. A wrong. And here in our own diocese, we approach our bishop, <coughs> we approach our parish priest, they almost they believe they're exempt. Now, either that's hypocrisy or it's a caste system, maybe a little of both. But there's powerful, there's power in what Randy Engel writes here. Very powerful when you unbundle it and you look at the this just what the three senses destroying the diocese with his hatred for all things Catholic and his personal vices. You know? Ask them when they then when, when our bishop in Lansing, my recollection was reported to me in my own personal recollection. He says he's the first bishop to to appoint a woman as administ- as uh, his chief administrative aide. I'm going by. I think that's what his administrator was. I'd like to say to him, well, what have you done for family formation? My mother was a housekeeper. She was a a a, a home a, a mother that was at home. She wasn't going to go out and have a career. What do you do about that, Bishop? Are you congratulating women who are like Mary in the home? Or are you just picking people who have careers, professional careers? Uh, I ask your uh, you got a you got a stable like we have stables versus horses. You got a stable versus experts. You got psychologists that you use. Ask them. Uh, is there any needs for housewives, house mothers, to have be uplifted by their bishop, or is just for a woman? who has chosen to have to leave the home and work as an administrative aide. What, and ask your stable of uh, psychologists, <clears throat> is there any among you that have PhDs, post, you know, your doctorates, but you have postdoctorate, anybody that's taught uh, psychology? And Jordan Peterson says that women, particularly in law firms, there's a crisis of women when they start to have their childbearing years. They want to work part-time. They don't want to continue, and they want to have a family. How do you respond to that, Bishop? How do you respond to that, psychologist? Uh, can you give us a brief on that, a medical brief that, oh, there's no harm, and there's no value to being a, a, a mother that stays home and does teaching, homeschooling? Where are you at on that, Bishop? On my coin. I, I understand. The last time I looked, we're supporting you. There's where you go. You want my money at the DSA, at the CSA? Let's put conditions. I want to see the statement that you publicly, at the same breadth and scope and the same means that you used when you announced that you are the first bishop in Lansing to choose an administrative aide that is female, show the same thing. You're the first bishop in Lansing to recognize all the women 
who have foregone a career and stayed at home to protect the family and want to be at the home and have babes, babies. Where's that at? Now, maybe you've done that, but I want to see that on the website, front and center, right next to your statement that you did on the administrative aid that's female, if in fact the report to me was accurate. Let's see that. Let's go on. <clears throat> In the ensuing years, Waybright and Mueller would... Uh, okay, we're down here. Monsignor Francis Marsden was another whistleblower who tried to warn Scanlon and Leahy that Bishop Ferrar was destroying the diocese with his hatred for all things Catholic and his personal vices. Monsignor Marzen was a well-known priest in the Honolulu Diocese and had edited the diocesan paper, the Hawaii Catholic Herald, for 25 years. He was the fourth person to warn Archbishop Leahy in 1981 that Ferraro should not be made Bishop of Honolulu. In a visit to Washington, D.C., Marzen told the apostolic delegate that it was common knowledge that, that Ferraro was a homosexual. In addition, he said that there were many other pressing problems at the Honolulu Chancery, such as widespread liturgical abuses and financial irregularities. He also told Leahy that promising candidate that promising candidates for the priesthood were being refused admits to St. Stephen's Seminary or being driven out. Now, let's talk about that. I want to do a digression. He, he, so you have this Monsignor reporting to the, to the nuncio, which is the eyes and ears of the Pope, uh, to Rome, that look, there are men that are candidates for the priesthood are being refused admits to the seminary or being driven out. We have a book, if you haven't heard about it, it's called Goodbye Good Men. And w- what you can do, if you can write your letter and you can say to the bishop, uh, say, Dear Bishop, is it true or false what Randy Engel writes at page 768 when uh, that, that, uh, that, and you can get the book or quote it right here, replay the tape here and quote it, that uh, that this was what was told to Leahy, that promising candidates for the priesthood were being refused admits to St. Stephen's Seminary or being driven out, period. Then you can ask the second question. Bishop, uh, do you have any knowledge of that happening in any of, in your church, in your life as a, as a cleric in a church? Two, three, third question. Bishop, uh, have you heard of the book, Goodbye, Good Men? Do you agree with the premise and the argument in that book, or do you disagree? Fourth, Bishop, you were in the seminary. You taught in the seminary. Did you ever see promising candidates for the priesthood uh, being refused admittance or driven out because of their uh, position on sexuality? They maintained celibacy. They wanted celibacy. They promoted celibacy, and they were not going to lie. They were not going to. They're not going to. Uh, they were firm in that witness. And did they? Did they ever get treated badly? Now you're not going to get any answers. I'm surprised if you do. But you ask the question. Power is in the question because when you don't get answers, then you can follow it up and you begin to to leverage and begin to tie bar your giving, your tithing, Bishop G. I'm going to put this money that I had been tithing off to the side until I get answers to those questions. Okay, think about that. All right, we're at page 768. I'm going to stop here, and we're going to come back to this in the next podcast. Thank you. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.